on my right, your left, and then pre-K and uh, is on my left, your right for room 216, and then first to fifth graders outside of room 214. And with that, we have a special pastor guest today, uh, Pastor Daniel Yoon. Good morning. Thanks for having me this morning. Thanks for having me this morning. Uh, again, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors up in uh, Grace, Sacramento. Uh, so a little bit of a distance from here, but not too far. I'd like this morning to read a passage of scripture out of a Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. And if you would, stand with me as we read the word of God together. And it's Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. This is the reading of God's word. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jemai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mathatheus, the son of Semyon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of uh, Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eli, uh, Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Mathata, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of uh, Aminadab, the son of uh, Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shalah, the son of Canaan, uh, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. probably laughing with me what guest preacher preaches through a, a list a genealogy well in my last year of undergrad as um, at the prestigious uh, University of California at San Diego I heard it's a great school I registered for the class that didn't really uh, pique my interest uh, necessarily but I one I needed to graduate I I think um uh, not that I needed this particular class, but it seemed like an easy A. And so I signed up for this class, needing it for not my major requirements, but to graduate. And so I needed just four units, and so I signed up for this Anthropology 101. Sounded like an easy A. And just what I needed to boost my GPA and graduate on time. So sometime during the course of this class, I realized there's no easy A without doing the, the reading of the book. 
Plus, I came to realize uh, late in the quarter, uh, like almost to the end, that I needed to read the material. Uh, have you ever read through an anthropology book? Maybe, maybe not. Perhaps it reads like a genealogy. I cannot tell you how many times, I cannot tell you how many times I have fallen asleep reading that book. And I will tell you, uh, and I think it goes without saying, that it was not an easy read. Luke, the author of the book that we're looking at that bears his name, The Gospel, a careful historian lays out meticulous detail, information we would rather skim or skip over. You know, I mean, we, it reads like almost like an anthropology book. Truth be told, I have been guilty of this, skimming over parts of the Bible, skipping over all those boring parts of Scripture. And just to name a few, I would say the book of Leviticus is one. I'm not sure if I'm mocking anybody, if that's their favorite book. Or books like the latter part of Exodus, where they talk about the measurements for the Ark of the Covenant. Or how about genealogies like this one or other ones that we find in the scriptures? Well, this morning you may be thinking, how strange. A guest preacher preaching through a genealogy, and I may never be invited back after this. The genealogy of Luke. Luke includes 11 groups of seven names. That's 77 names we just read. 77 names, like reading a whole section out of the white pages, and some of you may be wondering what in the world are the white pages. But it's a lot of names, a lot of difficult-to-pronounce names. A lot of names of people who lived long ago in a land far, far away that seemingly has no bearing on me. Luke goes to great length to give us an ancestry or a family tree. And if you're anything like me, going through a family tree that isn't yours isn't that fun. Why a long list? Why a sermon on a genealogy? Luke, as a careful and meticulous historian, includes the genealogy here for a reason. He is the author of the gospel, knowing for sure that you may know. In the prologue, in the first four verses of chapter one, he lays out for us that this is a genealogy, or this is a story of the life of Jesus, so that we might know. The gospel of knowing for sure. He would argue that these are not just sections to be skimmed over or skipped over. It is, after all, just as significant, just as meaningful, and just as inspired as the verses that you see up here on the sides of the walls. Just as inspired as a portion of scripture as your favorite verse or stories that you might find in the Bible. So why a genealogy? Why the need for a family tree? Sites like Ancestry.com are intriguing as these DNA ancestry 
tests help us learn more about ourselves and our family roots. For some, it's about discovering or our ethnic makeup or uh, family history as they go back up to 10 generations. We have a friend who took one of these tests uh, just right before the pandemic and decided to travel to Sweden with her family to meet distant relatives that she knew uh, she never knew she had. I love what Ancestry.com says on their website. It says, with precise geographical detail and clear-cut historical insights, we connect you to the places in the world where your story started, from unique regions to living relatives. So we want to know who we are and where we come from. And Luke is making similar, a similar case, and Luke's desire, again, if you were to find out, again, uh, why the genealogy and perhaps why the book of Luke, he would say Luke's desire is that the readers of his gospel know who Jesus was. That's the whole point. The whole point of the book, the whole gospel of the book of Luke is all about that we would know who Jesus was. So let's take a look at what a genealogy tells us about who Jesus is. Not only is Luke interested in who Jesus is, but so are the readers of that day. So for the Jews of Jesus' day, their identity was of utmost importance. This is how they maintained their identity. The Jews kept careful records of their family histories. They remember who their fathers were way back, several generations to the 12 original tribes of Israel. At first, it was passed down orally, but later on, it was, uh, it was written down for posterity. And so Jews routinely paid close attention to these questions of who I am and where I come from and who my fathers were. It was important because it considered how land was purchased or, or sold. You did not sell to a different tribe. You sold to someone who was from the same tribe as you were. Again, it was to ensure that, again, that, that the land that we possessed belonged to the same family tree. Or think about genealogy this way. Genealogy was crucial in determining the priestly or the kingly lines. Only, only those who were from the line of Levi or from the tribe of Levi could be priests in the, in the temple. Or think about the line of David, those who come from the the family tree of King David, the most revered and, and honored king of Israel, that a king would come in his genealogy. Let me pause here for a second and just uh, give you a few interesting tidbits of the book of Luke and his genealogy. Uh, for one, Luke's genealogy differs from that of Matthew. Matthew also includes a genealogy, but... A little different. If you remember Matthew's genealogy in chapter 1, again, there's a whole long list of names, not as long as Luke's. There's only about 42 names that we find in the book of Matthew, and compare that to 77 names in the book of Luke. For one, Luke's genealogy differs from that of Matthew. Uh, one, uh, Matthew starts from Abraham. He begins with Abraham and moves down to Jesus. And again, if you remember Abraham, Abraham was the father Abraham, the one whom God had promised a whole line of descendants or a whole group of, of peoples will come from, from you and your family. 
right? All the nations will be blessed through you in Genesis chapter 12. So Matthew, he recalls again the genealogy of Jesus by starting in with Abraham, and it trickles all the way down to, to Jesus himself. Where Luke does quite the opposite. He starts with Jesus, and he walks backwards through that, 77 names altogether. He runs through the line of King David, and then to Abraham, and then he goes even further back to Adam, the first human being that ever lived. Let me give you another one. Matthew includes four women on his list. Luke does not include any. Or another tidbit about the book of Luke. Some scholars believe that Matthew is tracing Joseph's genealogy and perhaps Luke is tracing Mary's. So again, we see this with the insertion of the words. And again, I love the, and again, there seems to be some humor behind Luke's writing. He says, as was supposed. I think it's funny. I read through the book of Luke, and I read that genealogy in chapter 3, and it's interesting because he goes through a long list of names, and again it says, and Joseph, as was supposed. What? <laughs> you know, it's funny when you read through it because, again, as was supposed. It's a funny phrase for a historian, someone who values accuracy and carefulness and certainty, says the father of Jesus was supposedly Joseph. Supposedly. Supposedly is Luke asking about maybe the fatherhood of Joseph to Jesus. Supposedly. As was supposed. Is Luke asking Joseph for a paternity test? Who is the real father? It sounds like a, a midday talk show. I'm not sure if anyone watches TV anymore. But I believe Luke uses this word or these words as was supposed to validate the virgin birth of Mary. And perhaps if Mary was Luke's source for much of the early life of Jesus, a genealogy or a genealogical line from Mary would make sense for Luke. But the virgin birth alone does not seem to be enough authentication for the gospel writer. So he writes to his readers. He wants his readers to know with certainty that not only does, uh, not only does Joseph come from a royal line, but so does Mary. It's not just Joseph, but Mary as well comes from the Davidic line, and her son has every right to the throne of David. So Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, which in the genealogy means that Jesus was the supposed son of Joseph, not biologically, but legally. Joseph, or Jesus was the son of Joseph, but he was really the son of Mary. And while Matthew's account indicates Joseph's father, it says uh, that his father was Jacob. I don't know if you see that on the slides or not. But it tells us, again, in Luke's account, that perhaps the father of Joseph was Heli. And again, you may be wondering, no, there's, there has to be some mistake 
Perhaps as we read through scripture again, if you are a, a doubter of scripture, you might say, well, here's a section of scripture that contradicts other portions of scripture where one section says Jacob was the father and another says Heli was the father. But again, if you know genealogies of the Old Testament and you know genealogies of, of even the gospel writers, again, the, the point here is that Jesus comes from, yes, the line of Joseph, the royal line of, of Joseph. But he also, if anyone has any doubt to the credentials of Jesus, the royal throne, Mary, too, is from that royal line as well. And so Luke includes this line in a calculated manner in between the baptism of Jesus and then the temptation of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus, we see God, uh, God uh, saying from heaven, he says, this is my son whom I am well pleased. And again, if you see the, the intent of the writer of the book of Luke, you get the sense that, again, in, in Matthew chapter 3, the section right before this, in the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River by John the Baptist himself, again, the heavens open up, and God is declaring the divinity of Jesus. Here is God. Here is my son. And if we read the, the section of, of this genealogy, we get the sense that not only was he the true son of God, the one with whom God was well pleased, he is also fully human. He possesses a full divine nature and also a, a human nature. He is fully God and he is fully man. And other gospel writers will explain this differently. Like, for example, the book of John says, In the beginning was the word, again, this idea that God existed or Jesus existed in the beginning of time. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word became God. The word made his dwelling among us. It says in chapter 1, verse 14, he pitched his tent and dwelt among his own people. And this is Luke's way. The heavens open up, God declaring, this is my son. And the gospel writer Luke telling us in 77 names through the line of Mary, who Jesus is. So what does the genealogy tell us about Jesus? I'm going to do three quick points here. Both Matthew and Luke, independent of one another, make it clear that Joseph was not the physical father of Jesus, but that he was uniquely conceived by the Holy Spirit and through Mary. And the virgin birth allows for Jesus' deity that he was and is and continues to be God, which is clearly established in the rest of the Gospel of Luke. But also, the Lucan account shows that Jesus was fully human, descended from men listed in the genealogy. He was the Son of God. The genealogy of Jesus shows him to be God-promised, right? The promised God or the promised Savior for all people. It tells us that Jesus shows him to be the, the promised Savior that had been prophesied for, for centuries, the one that had been prophesied by the prophets of the Old Testament, of the minor prophets, of the fathers of the Old Testament. This is the same Jesus who has come, who has been prophesied from of old. He was and is the Son of God. 
Jesus alone as God in human flesh, both fully God and fully man, is what uniquely qualifies him to be both the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of those from every nation who call upon him. Jesus Christ had roots. He didn't just magically appear out of nowhere. He has a family tree. He didn't just drop out of heaven. He didn't appear magically on the scene, but at the perfect moment in history, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus had a human family. He had a mother and a father and a history. He, had some, uh, he was not some fictional character like the gods of Mount Olympus. He was a real person born into a real family. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, But when the time had come, God sent his son. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Prophesied from long ago. And Jesus had to be both fully God and fully man to be a, a savior, a mediator between God and a fallen and broken world. He had to be the perfect candidate, fully God and sinless in every way. And also human, tempted as you and I are, and yet without sin. Jesus poses, uh, possesses these uh, proper credentials, the proper roots to be the promised agents of God. He is Abraham's seed. Yes, he is the line of David. He is the son of God. But as the son of God, he is also the son of man. And Jesus' family tree qualifies him both from both a human and a divine standpoint to bring about the salvation of God, a perfect candidate. Point number two. This is a fascinating stuff. It's fascinating to me. The whole book of Luke is, is beautifully written. And so I hope you're, not, uh, hope you're following along as, as best as you can. But a second tidbit of, uh, or the second thing I want to say about why a genealogy, what does the genealogy tell us about Jesus? The genealogy of Jesus shows him to be both the son of Adam and also the son of God. There's some rich theology there. What's interesting about Luke's account of the genealogy is that he works backwards. Luke begins with Jesus, where Matthew begins with Abraham and ends with Jesus. But look again at how Luke's genealogy ends. No other genealogy ends this way. The son of... Wait, wait, don't have it in my notes. Can I get the next slide real quick? The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. No other genealogy ends this way. The son of God. The statement reveals something about the nature of Adam and his unique relationship to God. He was not born like the others in the human race. He was made as a direct act of creation, just like, and technically speaking, just like Adam. He is God's son, created in the image of God, bearing the family likeness of God, and Adam is the only other who can truly be regarded as the son of God. If you think about Adam, he has no earthly father. And so the writer of Luke, right, Luke himself, the gospel writer, tells us and ends with this profound statement. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and the son of God. 
some of us, as we like to look at our genealogy, like to think that we come from good stock, that our ancestors were noble and good, that they were somewhat uh, heroic. We think of that. I mean, I, I think about that myself. I don't know about my grandfathers, my great-grandfathers, but I, I wish and I, and I hope. And sometimes I, I think I, I must come from good stock, right? Look at who I am. Some jokes. Um, we hope that there's nobody bad in our genealogy, right? We hope we, we stay away from those uh, wicked folks in creation, right, or in our genealogy that kind of mess everything up. But there's something commendable about the line we come from. We like to think that they stood up for what was right, that they made right decisions, ones we hope that we would make if we were in those positions today. But unfortunately, that's not the point of the genealogy of Jesus. Why a connection to Adam? Why does he take it way back, more than Matthew does? Why way back to Adam? As I mentioned earlier, the connection to Adam connects, uh, makes Jesus a real human being who existed in a place and time in history, but also connected to the rest of humanity. Jesus has his place in the human race. He was and is a real person. The connection to Adam marks the beginning of that line, and Adam is the only other who can be truly regarded as a son of God. Adam was the first. The simplest and most natural interpretation of Genesis chapter 1 is that God created a specific person by the name of Adam on the sixth day of creation, a historical Adam, a specific person, Adam was real. He had a wife named Eve. He had children named, uh, <laughs> he had children, many, many children, we think, but uh, there are children, three children in particular that are named in the book of Genesis of Cain and Abel and Seth and Enoch. I believe that Luke includes Adam to the, to the, uh, as the first person on the planet to make a point. In fact, as we look at the line of Jesus, he does not come from good stock. Again, it's a long line of fallen sinners. If you ever read the story that way, let me see if I can give you a different perspective. I used to think growing up that the Bible was filled with heroes, exemplary men and women of great faith and Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a long line of those who possess great faith. You look at men like David who slayed a giant, or Moses who opened up the Red Sea and the people of Israel, two million of them walked on dry ground through the Red Sea, the promised land. Right? You think of uh, great names like Jacob, whom, whom God changes his name to, to Israel. Or Abraham, who was the father of, of nations, the father of multitudes. But if I can be real, and if I can give you my perspective or my take on, on Scripture, is that there are no heroes that I see in Scripture. No one to emulate, no one to look up to, no one to say, like, I want to live just like he did or she did. All the characters that we read in Scripture have some sort of flaw, and some of them, the ones we just named, have, have major flaws. And 
so when you look at the family tree of, of Jesus, and I will tell you, we did a series of the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. There are some messed up stuff. It's not just the PG or PG-13, but there's R-rated stuff. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a horrible line, sullied with broken families. With, with sin. But I think that's Luke's point. He includes these names and he goes all the way back to Adam. And if you know anything about Adam, right? I mean, we think about Adam and he's the first one who sinned. When you take this genealogy way back, and what he does is doesn't stop at Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam. He's making a point is that you're the first person who was given the keys to the, to the Garden of Eden, the paradise. He had everything he could wish for. He was in fellowship with God. He had everything that he needed, and he even had everything he wanted. And God says to Adam, you can eat of any tree of the Garden of Eden except for one, just one thing. And you and I know exactly how that's like, right? We know our own heart and our own tendency. We have the whole world and that one thing that we can't have, it's the one thing that we want. And so Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And if we know anything about the first person, right, the first Adam, the first man, the one whom God breathed into his nostrils and gave life, the first Adam, the first person to have ever existed, the one thing we know about him, and this is not just for those inside the church, but everyone outside the church know this about Adam, that he sinned. And sin wasn't just eating of fruits. I like to tell my kids that when they were growing up, I used to say, you know, there's nothing about eating of fruit that makes it bad. It was that he disobeyed the word of the Lord. So he sins, and that's what Adam is known for. And what Luke is doing here, when he takes the genealogy of Jesus, from Jesus all the way back to the first person, he's presenting for us a contrast. There's a technical term, um, and you may say, I didn't come to uh, learn theology this morning, but uh, here you go. It's federalism, and it just means that uh, Adam was the representative head of the human race. And you might say something like, that's not fair, right? Why does his sin count against me, right? Uh, we, you know, you know when, we talk about, uh, when we talk about sin, we say, you know, why is Adam's sin, right? Why is what Adam did in the first uh, event in human history, why does that make me a sinner? Right? Ever, ever hear that about uh, natural sin or, or inherent sin or born with, uh, with a sin uh, nature? It just does not seem fair. When we talk about federalism, it just means that Adam was a representative head. Uh, much like a football game, and we're in football season now, a team captain will go up. He will call heads or tails. It'll come down, and whatever it lands is the call, right? If you guessed right, then you get the choice to either receive the ball or kick off the ball, right? No one on the team says, that's not fair, right? He wasn't chosen, like, uh, by me to be our captain. 
And there's a fancy word, a, a, fam a, a word, uh, it's, it's called imputation. It means that uh, something has been placed upon another, right? And so when Adam says this imputation of sin has been imputed to all of humanity, it means that when Adam sinned, the Bible tells us all sinned. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. When Adam sinned, as a representative, as a federal head, he imputed sin to all of us, which, again, I will say is not fair. But the scriptures are very clear. The Bible is very clear about sin. It says, when Adam sinned, and if you were there, you would have made the exact imputation. Adam's one sin imputed, accounted, reckoned to all whom he represents. As a result of this transaction, all who are in Adam, those who have Adam as their father, says that we all have sinned. Adam served as a representative head. Through Adam's one trespass, affects all those who are in Adam. Paul makes several comparisons between Adam and Jesus, showing that both are literal heads of humanity and brings certain consequences for mankind. The man Adam brings death, guilt, and condemnation for all those who are in him. Through the sin of one man, the first Adam, death came into the world. This resulted in that when a human being is born, they are born into an inherent sinful state, a sinful nature. You never asked for it, but without asking for it, sin is automatically imparted to us at birth because of our first Adam's sin. Thus, when we are born, we are born into the first Adam. But my friends, the story does not stop. Because in Luke's genealogy, he goes on to say that we have a second Adam. And Paul will reiterate this fact that, again, it's a, not a Jesus who comes, or again, we know that his name is Jesus, but calls Jesus a second Adam or the last Adam and compares these two individuals, both born of God, and that through the first Adam, where sin is imputed to the rest of humanity, the scriptures tell us that it's through the righteousness, the sinlessness, Though he was tempted in every way and yet without sin, the perfect God and the perfect man, perfectly divine and perfectly human, who possesses both natures perfectly, that the second Adam, or the last Adam, by putting our faith in him, his righteousness, which I will say is not fair either, but that righteousness has been imputed to us. The good news of the scriptures is that though we are, we face this condemnation and eternal damnation because of our sin in the first Adam, the Bible tells us again that the imputation of Christ's righteousness upon us you know, uh, my professors used to say there are these three imputations that we find in scripture where the Sin of Adam has been imputed to all of humanity. Uh, the imputation of our sins, when Christ was hung on a cross, was imputed to him. What he didn't do, he did not deserve. 
our sins, your sins and mine, every time we've wronged God, every time we've wronged our neighbor, those sins were imputed to the cross. And the invitation of Christ's righteousness by his faithful living, his obedience to God, my friends, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to all those who place their faith in him. All those who place their faith in him. I'm going to skip through a lot of this. There's a lot I'm skipping over here. But let me get to the third point here. Can I get the uh, second to last slide? What does the genealogy tell us about Jesus? The genealogy, my friends, connects us to a greater story. And it's interesting, that means that what Jesus has done pertains to anyone who belongs to him. The people he came to save were people just like you and me, sinners. They were idolaters, murderers, liars, cheaters, adulterers. This is why we all need to be saved. We all need to be rescued. Our sins have separated us from God. And as one commentator puts it, God, the Son, became the Son of the Son of the Son of Sinners. God, the Son, became the Son of the Son of Sinners. And the Bible tells us, and John makes this clear point, and uh, the Apostle John in the book of 1 John chapter 3 makes it very clear. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. And how beautifully put that you and I can be called children of God. It connects us to a greater story. It says that once we place our faith in Jesus, you and I become sons and daughters of God. That we no longer have to come before God with the righteousness or any merit of my own, but that I can come to God based on the merits of the perfect son of Jesus Christ. My friends, we stand before God and God looks at us, God looks at you and says, you are the son, you are the daughter and with whom I am well pleased. He doesn't see past our sin. He doesn't ever do that. He sees how sinful we really are. <laughs> he knows how many times we have fallen short. And says to us, while we were yet sinners. Not when we had cleaned up our act, not when we had gotten everything together and presented ourselves before God, presentable. The gospel story, my friends, is that yes, sin is real and sin affects all of humanity. And I know we like to brush over that and never talk about it, but I will tell you that grace does not make sense if you don't see that there is a sin problem. There's no need to be saved if there's nothing to be saved from. And so Jesus tells us that those who believe, right, those who place their faith in 
Jesus. All have access, that we have access to the Father through his Son. And that we too have rights and we all will one day be co-heirs and co-reigners with Christ. And we will be and we are children of God. See what love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Join me in prayer. The world looks like, likes to look at our accomplishments and our achievements, our degrees, the things that we own. The world loves stories about the self-made man and the self-made woman. But if the scriptures tell us anything, it's that we are a broken people, that we've fallen short of the glory of God. provides a way. God provides a way through his son, Jesus Christ. For Jesus says so himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus had to be both fully God and fully human. A perfect representative that he might present us to God. We thank you, Lord, for access to the Father. We thank you, Lord, that we have a way, even while we were yet sinners. Thank you for your love towards us. Amen. Part of the practice that we engage in, both in our church and I know here at, uh, at Risen Hayward, is the Lord's Table. And the Lord's table is more than just a fond memory like, uh, yeah, a good thing happened. A good thing happened 2,000 years ago, and yes, we can say that, but it's more than that. The Lord's table is a, a place we come to to be refreshed, to be reminded that we belong to the table, that we belong to his family and his family tree. The Lord's table, but as you drink the cup and you take the bread, are reminders of your identity. That we have a Father in heaven who loves us. And I heard this recently. Uh, someone say, um, you know, our coming to worship is more than just uh, our way of saying, God, I love you. Certainly you, you get that sense when you come here that uh, you're... You're saying, I love you through the worship. But if I can say the Lord's table here is a way of saying, Lord, I love you too. Thank you for your son. Lord, I know I'm able to love because you first loved me. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and said, take it all of you and do this in memory of me. 
In the same way, he took the cup. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant. Shed for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So in a moment, we'll take the bread and the cup together. But for now, if you would, come before our Lord's Lord's feet and, and confess your sins to God and one another. Let's do that now. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son. Lord, thank you for the outpouring of that great love for us. While we were yet sinners. Father, thank you for undeserved, unmerited love. That you look at us, and you see how broken we really are, and yet you still love us. So God, we take this moment, Lord, to say, I love you too. We thank you for your son. I think you have in front of you uh, the communion cup. I think at the top layer of that cup is the bread. If you would just peel, peel the first layer of that package you have in front of you. We'll take, the, take part in the communion together as we remember the body of Christ broken for us. Church, brothers and sisters in Christ, take and eat. <laughs> 